So if you're here, you know that there's new worship times. <laughs> this is a one service at 9.30. What I'm going to remind people is that if you are able to park on a side street and walk, let's leave as many parking spots open for visitors and those who may be closer to the building as a way of love. Um, secondly, the Youth Summer Missions trip is uh, going to be underway in June. So our high school youth will be serving in St. Louis at New City Fellowship Church. Uh, the Restore St. Louis uh, ministry has been one that's been, uh, it's been going on for years. So this is going to be a great experience uh, for our high, school, high schoolers. They'll also be able to serve in a much needed way in a part of the city that needs love. And so um, they're looking for, for funds. They have a fundraiser going on in the Great Hall, so I invite you to check that out if you're interested in supporting them. And the last thing I'll mention is that there will be some new men and women's Bible studies happening uh, this summer. So beginning in June, we have a women's Bible study. to you today. My name is Mark, and I'm an elder here at Grace Chapel. Whoops. My notes are in English, <laughs> and we'll see how, how things go today. Uh, the events of Pentecost, they're strange, uh, but the Bible is filled with strange people and events. In the Bible, these weird supernatural events seem to pop out of nowhere to advance the story of the Bible. And when the Lord breaks into history in supernatural ways, that means something big is happening. And this morning's Pentecost text, though strange, has a context. And situating the events of Acts 2 within that larger story of the Bible is one of the things we're up to this morning. And we're going to do that by retelling the story of the Bible, at least a part of it. Of course, Pentecost is not where the story begins, but it where, it's where we're, going to be, where we're going to start. So let's read our text, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And if you have a Bible, uh, as you turn there, I'm going to pray. Spirit, come and uh, do what you do, which is to enlighten our hearts and our minds, and you empower us to be the body of Christ on earth. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
So Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what does this mean? Well, Peter is going to use the rest of Acts chapter 2 to explain to his hearers, his first century hearers, what just happened. These people are steeped in the Hebrew scriptures, so Peter assumes that they know what he knows. That means that we need to have in our heads what they have in their heads. And we're going to explore that, and then as we close today, we'll talk about what this means for us as believers in Jesus. The context of Pentecost begins in the beginning. Genesis chapter 1 through 11, they establish all the essential threads of the biblical story. It tells us that the world was wonderfully made and very good, but that something went terribly wrong. But what went wrong? Well, imagine we could ask that of a literate Israelite living around the time of Jesus. Let's call him Roger. Roger the Israelite. Suppose we asked Roger why the world was broken. I think he'd give us three reasons why the world is broken. The first reason would be the sin of Adam and Eve. You know, the story begins, we're familiar with it, with Adam and Eve, they're in a garden. They're in a garden in Eden. They enjoy a relationship with God and with one another that is pristine, and it's unlike any relationship since. God wants to rule the earth with and through the humans, to govern with his earthly family. God gives these two the task to taking the beauty and the order of Eden and expanding it into the whole world. To do this, they're going to need wisdom, and the Lord will give it to them in his time. But into the story comes a talking snake. 
who tells them that they can get God's wisdom right away. All they have to do is the one thing they've been forbidden to do. Eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, they eat and everything gets broken. The human's relationship with God, with each other, and with God's beautiful garden, it's all broken. And then death enters creation. In response, God, he curses the serpent, the woman, the man, and the ground. And he exiles the man and the woman from the garden. But embedded and planted within the curse of the snake, there's a seed of hope. Here it is, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise, or that could be crush, your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So the Lord promises, even in this catastrophe, that someday a descendant of Eve will crush the serpent's head, though the serpent crusher will be wounded in the process. So the remainder of the biblical story is about God working providentially and supernaturally to bring human history to its climax, which is the arrival of the snake crusher and the consummation of his ministry. Now, the second thing Roger would tell us is that something happened in Genesis chapter 6 between the sons of God and the daughters of men that was a catalyst for moral chaos and violence. What was bad became unimaginably awful. Scripture says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord, he responds with a flood that cleanses the earth, leaves only Noah, a righteous man, and his family as survivors. But ultimately, if we just read a little bit further in the text, we see that the evil of the garden and the moral chaos of Genesis 6 was was not eradicated by the flood. Now, the third thing the Israelites would say is that we're in the mess we're in is because of what happened at the Tower of Babel. And Pentecost helps explain how that's so. Let's think back to our Acts chapter 2 text and make some observation. First thing to note is that verses 1 through 4 describe the strange supernatural phenomena. Disciples are gathered. There's a sound like a howling wind throughout the house. And there are divided tongues of fire. I wonder if it was like lightning or was it more like a flamethrower? Or maybe it was like a lightsaber. These are things I think about. But anyway, the fire splits off and it touches each person in the house. So Luke, he associates the Old Testament images of fire and wind with the presence of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit brings this supernatural ability to speak in languages that the speaker has never learned. That's incredibly strange. But then, beginning in verse 8 and going through verse 12, Luke does something weird. 
Instead of of elaborating on what just happened, like telling us cool stuff about the wind and about the fire, he gives us an ethnographic catalog of all the places the hearers were from and the language that they spoke. In the text, Luke notes in verse 6, everyone heard in his own language. In verse 8, in his own native language. In verse 11, in our own tongues. So apparently, Luke wants us to pay attention to where the people are from and what language they speak. Because what should have sounded like babble to them was instead intelligible speech. Instead of language dividing the people, these tongues unified the people around the good news of Christ. Now, where else have we read about language and divided peoples? Sure, that sounds like what happened at the Tower of Babel, right? Only in reverse. So one of the things that Pentecost means is that the Spirit is reversing what happened at Babel. Genesis 11 describes what happened at Babel. I just want to refresh our memory with what happened there. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us build for ourselves, and, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, This is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they proposed to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth." Now, let's recall, the founder of Babel is a guy named Nimrod. He's connected to the Sons of God event from Genesis 6 and the evil and violence that sprang up from that event. And these people, they intend to build a tower where heaven and earth meet, a place for their gods to come down and establish a new world order. Now, I think a fair analogy would be to Nazi Germany. They were one people, with one language, one culture, a fatherland intent on unifying the world around the Aryan Superman. The Third Reich is analogous to what's going on at Babel. And the Lord's not having it. He comes down, he divides the people by dividing their language and their national ambitions, they fall apart. Now, Pentecost and Babel share geographical connections as well. The peoples scattered at Babel, the people who get dispersed, they're all listed in Genesis. And they're connected to the places in Acts chapter 2. Some of the names are different, but if you could just plot them out on a map, you could lay the Babel map and the Acts chapter 2 map right over the top of each other. There's consistency there. But this is cool. Some of the nations scattered at Babel weren't represented at Pentecost. 
And I think that's why Luke is so careful in the rest of the Acts. Just notice, just notice this the next time you read the Acts. He's so careful to note every time the gospel goes to a new place, he tells you where that place is. So what Luke is doing there is he's checking off people group after people group as each one receives the gospel. Now, we can see another way Pentecost and Babel are connected when we look at some vocabulary, particularly from uh, what's called the Septuagint. If you're a Bible nerd, you'd remember that the Septuagint, it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. It's the Bible that the writers of the New Testament used when they quoted. So one of Luke's hyperlinks to Babel is is the word he uses for the word divided in Acts chapter 2. It's diamerizo. In the Septuagint, that word is also used in the Babel story, but not in the Genesis 11 Babel story. It's used in Moses' commentary on the Babel story from Deuteronomy chapter 32. Here's what that says. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob's allotted heritage. So at Babel, the nations, they have their prodigal son moment. The nations don't want to live under God's rule as his children. They want their independence and their inheritance. So the Lord gives it to them. He sets their borders and he sends them off where they're ruled by other gods. But he builds himself a nation, Israel. Israel is going to be the means he uses to bring the nations back to himself. And the Lord starts that process right after Babel. What's the next thing that happens after Babel? God calls Abraham. And the creation of the Hebrew people begins. And in Abraham's call, God makes a promise. He says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred, your father's house, to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, so you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Abraham will become a great nation. And all the nations will be brought back into blessing through Abraham. And that's what Pentecost is beginning. How so? How is Israel supposed to be a blessing to the nations? Well, they were to be a kingdom of priests whose devotion to Yahweh would be so attractive that the nations would want to come back to to meet the God of Israel. And who knows, maybe from Israel they'll come a snake crusher. Well, most of the time, Israel failed as a kingdom of priests, but sometimes someone would come along and you'd wonder, is he the one? David was, sort of. I mean, he did cut the head off a giant snaky man, but then his moral failure and lousy parenting led to civil war, idolatry, dispersion, and exile. But even then, the Lord was working supernaturally and providentially to advance his plan to rule the earth with and through humans. The Lord never gives up on his plan. 
As Ezekiel prophesied, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them, talking to Israel. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring, them, bring you into your own land. I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from your uncleanness and from your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So Ezekiel's prophecy is pointing toward the time when the spirit would establish a new people from God, a new people of God throughout the world. Because through the exile... And to the dispersion, the Lord has seeded the Gentile lands with people who would return to their homes after Pentecost and take the message of Jesus to the nations. And at Pentecost, the church is born. The church is the new anti-Babel. And that's something else that Pentecost means. Where Babel was a unification In the service of domination and subjugation, the church is unified around the message that Jesus has redeemed the world and all who desire to participate in that redemption are welcome. Pentecost means that whoever believes in him is welcome. Family, language, homeland, sex, culture, anything we might think of as being our identity is utterly secondary to this new unified body that is the church. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 3. He uses this Greek word ethne, which is the same word used of peoples and nations. It's our English root for ethnicity. Here's what Paul says about what's happened at Pentecost. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, you ethne, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Here's the mystery, that the Gentiles... The ethne are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. See, Pentecost dissolves the Jew and the Gentile distinction begun with Abraham. It dissolves divisions of family, language, homeland, men and women, culture, that, and culture that the church sometimes We pretend those are essential today. At the resurrection, Jesus overcomes death. He provides a remedy for the mortality introduced in Eden. And of course, Jesus is the final serpent crusher. He defeated death. He disarmed what Paul calls rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. These are the forces that instigated the moral chaos in Genesis 6. Jesus is the victor, 
And in victory, he ascends to the right hand of the Father where he intercedes for us. And from his throne, he sent the Spirit. And the coming of his Spirit is the heart of the Pentecost story. The church is born. So Jesus, he fixed all three of Roger the Israelite's problems. Jesus, by the Spirit, gave remedy for the curse of death from Genesis 3. He gave remedy for the moral chaos and violence of Genesis 6 and the disunity of the Tower of Babel. So, in closing, what might Pentecost mean for us? I think Roger, the Israelite, would suggest a few things for us to think about. First, if we're Christ's, then we have everlasting life. To be Christ's is to be indwelt by his spirit, and to be indwelt by the spirit is to have eternal life. Paul writes this in Romans, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That's awesome. Second, the Spirit binds us together in a single unified body. This body lives at Grace Chapel and beyond Grace Chapel. As 1 Corinthians 12 says, believers everywhere are one body. That's what it says. For just as the body is one and has many members... And all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into the body. Jews or Greeks, slaves are free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Third thing Roger would say is that Pentecost means every Christian is obligated to every other Christian everywhere. And those obligations supersede all other obligations. Here are the scriptures. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let me add, we are obligated to use them. Fourth, Pentecost means our obligations extend to everything we do and we say. Because our behavior can build up our tear down. It can tear up our own life. It can tear down a church. So within the body of Christ, within the body of Christ, there is no such thing as merely private behavior. Paul writes this, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Fifth, our ignorance of God's will doesn't hinder the administration of his will. See, because the Spirit knows the will of God, and He is interceding 
He's interceding for us according to that will. Now we can just rest in that, even as we ask the Spirit to tell us what he knows. Romans chapter 8 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. It doesn't depend upon us. Six, the Pentecost means the Spirit provides everything the church needs to reach the nations with the gospel. The church lacks nothing except perhaps the conviction to use what's been given. Acts 1.8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will receive all power. It's all we need. Seventh, and lastly, when we the church finally complete what we've been called to do, and the last nation has heard the amazing news of Christ's redemption, and when Babel is fully and finally reversed, then the end will come. Listen to Jesus' words from Matthew 24. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. May it be so. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.